You're listening to Sport, Digital and Social with Mr. Richard Clark. If you're in the banking business, there's good publicity and there's bad publicity. In boxing generally, there's only publicity, good and bad sales. So of Joshua's opponents, I'd say almost all of them have formed a master-slave relationship leading into the fight. They're respectful of the champ. They wouldn't say a bad word about him. In boxing, you do the absolute opposite of whatever they do. Where they'd apologize, you be belligerent. Where they'd shy away from controversy, you discuss it and create discussion about it. We are getting ready to rumble. Anthony Joshua is fighting Joseph Parker at the Millennium Stadium, Cardiff, on March 31st with three of the four heavyweight title belts on the line. On this edition of Sport, Digital and Social, I speak to Parker's promoter, David Higgins, about how he managed to engineer a lucrative unification fight when at times the chances seem remote. Also, how technology helped and hindered that process, the counterintuitive nature of boxing PR, how and when to train wreck a press conference, his plans to unnerve Joshua, how the fight will secure Parker's future and how David Higgins himself got into the boxing business. Small side note, you can contact me on social via at Mr. Richard Clark on my website, mrrichardclark.com. Also, as an experiment, I've set up an Instagram account for the podcast, Sport, Digital and Social, all spelt out. Feel free to chat to me there. Anyway, let's let David introduce himself, then we'll talk about the big fight. My name is David Higgins from New Zealand. I'm the founder of a company called Duco Events. And we promote heavyweight world champion Joseph Parker, among other things. Okay, so we are a couple of weeks after Parker Joshua has been announced. How pleased are you overall with the job you've done of making this fight happen? Because for a while it seemed some way away. We're delighted, of course, because years of hard work, sweat blood and tears and toil have gone into it and I mean when I say that I mean Joseph Parker himself who's unbeaten to date started on the pads at age three from a tough background you know it was a dream of his father for his son to to achieve this goal and then our business has invested heavily uh, from the wrong side of the tracks and quite disadvantaged low government funding of boxing in New Zealand you know we've had to hustle and scrap our way um, and, you know, it started as a dream on a whiteboard. And to get there, of course, we're delighted. But I'll add this. It doesn't feel like winning lotto. And we don't pinch ourselves and think how lucky we are. And the reason is not luck. It's because of all that hard work. We're not overly excited. It was earned. There's a there's quiet confidence in the camp. So what's the timeline now? Joseph in camp now in Las Vegas. He will fly to London roughly... Two weeks before March 31, based in London. Five days before the fight, he'll go into Cardiff. And everyone's focus and our team is on that one night and, and we're there to win. So to get the fight to happen, you did something a little bit unusual. You staged a press conference. It was live on Facebook and you called out Joshua, talked about his chin, talked about mental weakness, talked about speed. Just talk me through that, that strategy because... It was a, a press conference calling for a fight, effectively. It took a bit of nerve. So when Joseph Parker beat Huey Fury on points to retain his world title, and that 
some people criticised the way he went about that, which is another story, but we got the win. We honestly didn't think Joseph Parker's next fight would be the first intercontinental unification in maybe a decade, you know, an event that could happen once a generation, against the biggest star, certainly in the heavyweight division, Anthony Joshua, in front of 80,000 fans, maybe a billion viewers on TV, and a payday that will set Joseph Parker up for life. We didn't think that that would be the case. Certainly, Joshua was in the mix. We were looking at various options. And, you know, Eddie Hearn, who's proven good to work with, you know, he's got his critics, but I'm not a critic of Eddie Hearn. I found him professional, honest, and, and good to deal with. But he pointed out early on that Parker was not a big name in the UK, one. Two, the fans aren't calling for that fight. And three, therefore, the financial offer to Joseph Parker would be on the lower end of the scale. And so we thought about that. And, and you know, I thought, how, how do we fix that? And rather than doing a normal press conference of Joseph Parker training or, or skipping, it took a bit of nerve. It felt uncomfortable that we thought we need to be provocative and kill three birds with one stone. And so we thought being fact-based was an important part of it. Like, there's trash talk. We've been accused of trash talk, but to me, trash talk is when you're saying things that aren't true. You know, your opponent's a bitch, a, a bum, or whatever. Anyone can say that. So we thought, what, let's have a look at Anthony Joshua. What, what are actual hard facts that might be provocative to get under their skin? Having been to a few meetings in England with boxing people, I won't name names, everyone I meet, they start talking about the people in their camp, the sparring partners that have dropped Anthony Joshua. And I'm, I'm not joking. Big names in English boxing, trainers, fighters, they start telling me that they know this guy who dropped Joshua. Um, you know, we know that he was dropped in the professional on TV ranks by Klitschko and, and Dillian White shook him up. But then we heard stories of Dillian White as an amateur dropping him. Then we hear rumors that Daniel Dubois dropped him. We did our research, and a lot of it was true. But then we discovered no one, no one talked about it. And in most sports, it's normal to assess, discuss your opponent's strengths and weaknesses. And we found it odd that everyone kind of whispered about Joshua, but they never really discussed it. And I don't know whether it's the money and power with Eddie Hearn and Sky TV, but to us, it seemed like we thought... If we discuss this openly, it's going to piss a few people off. But it's going to achieve two or three things. One, people, it'll educate the English fans and the Joshua fans, because a lot of them think Joshua is the undisputed world champion. He's not. There's two other champions, Parker, Wilder. So if we make this sort of noise, people will look into it. They'll think, who is this guy from New Zealand that's saying this? And it'll educate them that there is another world champion named Joseph Parker. He's from New Zealand. So put them on the map a bit. Second, you know, in pissing them off, it creates a rivalry, a rivalry where the Joshua fans want Parker to be to be taught a lesson, and so they start baying, calling, make the fight, make it happen. Third, it creates a demand, increases the value of the fight. Parochialism kicks in. Underdog, top dog, New Zealand, England. The overall size of the event in terms of revenue, tickets, pay-per-view, suddenly Anthony Joshua, Eddie Hearn got more interested in the event and the, the terms, the financial terms improved to the point 
the deal was made. So we had our critics, but ultimately we're pragmatic. Proof is important and strategy works. Yeah, I was going to talk about those critics because they've happened a lot, but I want to talk about the way you've reacted to it. But the, the, one of the criticisms of this particular press conference was it was live on Facebook and it was on a handheld device, so it looked it looked a bit wonky. It was moving all over the place. I've seen it. So that allowed Eddie Hearn at the time to call it amateur. The Sun over here, a major newspaper, called it amateur as well or, or criticised it. So it was that use of technology or the way it was presented that kind of affected the perception of it. That was a blessing in disguise. I'll tell you what, the Sun are amateur. The reason, there were two very meaningful factual points that we discussed at that press conference, forgetting how it was transmitted, which I'll get to in a minute, but point one was Josh was being dropped a few times. There's evidence of it. No one talks about it. What's his gin like? Does he have a weakness no one talks about? The sum totally ignored that legitimate factual point. The second one was, what is a fair purse ratio to be paid to an unbeaten fellow world champion? What percentage is fair and reasonable given the history and context of the sport? The Sun completely ignored that. Instead, they played straight into Master Eddie's hands. It was probably a friend of Eddie's brother, I don't know. But they instead talked about the transmission of the press conference. So they're not doing their job. They're amateur and it's clickbait modern media. At first we thought, and, and by the way, the, the person filmed on the phone, I didn't realize they didn't have the thing. But look, for the people that don't know, it was actually a perfectly professional press conference. None of the New Zealand media complained. We had all New Zealand media there. They've been, we've done a hundred of them. We've never been criticized. And it wasn't in a broom cupboard. It was in a normal office. And you know, in New Zealand, it wasn't reported that way because they saw it live. But I accept in, if you're in the UK, you saw a grainy, wobbly feed. Now, I didn't realize that the person filming was hand-holding a phone. In hindsight, it's something we'd address going forward. You know, you make some mistakes, but the thing was effective. What it allowed her and Joshua were pains to not discuss Joshua's chin or the times he'd been dropped or a fair purse ratio. They would quietly pay us a lower purse behind the scenes. And so their strategy to totally ignore chin and the purse and instead lean on friendly journalists to attack the Facebook feed. The mockery of the feed created all this derision and the English fans got rabid. From there, we kept, we held our nerve and we kept articulating our points. And sure enough, um, it became the fight that everyone wanted to see. And I think I'm right, as in that press conference, you put a bounty on anyone who had footage of Parker being dropped. Now, that's a dangerous thing to do in the modern age because there's cameras everywhere. And I know Josie Parker is, is a couple of decades old and, and technology's changed, but still, in boxing gyms, you can film anything. Were you a bit nervous about that? Yes, I was nervous. So, And Joseph Parker is a very intelligent and honest, he's a good, friendly man. You know, he, he doesn't pretend to be humble. He is humble, there's a difference with modern athletes. Some have mastered the art of pretending to be humble on the advice of their PR companies when they're the opposite. They're vain and towering egos. Some are like that. Parker's really humble. That's another story. But I'm back on that strategy. I sat Joseph down one on one. I said, mate, I think we're going to offer this bounty for anyone who can prove or establish that you've been dropped. So I've got to ask you, have you ever been dropped training like as a kid? 
He said, no. I said, have you ever been dropped even once off your feet at the Amtrak? He said, no. I said, as a professional, have you been dropped in sparring? No. In, in fight? No. I said, so Joseph, have you never, ever been dropped at any time under any circumstances? You know, I said, okay, I'm going to offer this bounty since it's on your head. I'm taking your word for it. And, and sure enough, we offered the bounty and no one came forward. So, look, a lot of people are writing us off at their peril because we're quietly confident we earned this opportunity the hard way against all odds. And our fighter definitely has a better chin and it's proven. I want to take you back to the Huey Fury, Joseph Parker press conference as well, because you did something unusual there as well. You, uh, what you call train wrecked it. I, I, you used the phrase train wrecked it. There was an issue over the referees and you went in and you basically disrupted Joseph Parker's press conference and had a bit of a row with Peter Fury, who was his trainer, and got chucked out. So, But that was a deliberate ploy. You were doing that deliberately, right? Yes. Well, look, what, what people don't see is what goes on behind the scenes. I can tell you this. The contract for that fight gave us joint approval of officials, um, including referee in particular, was important to us. Peter Fury looked me in the eye and shook my hand, and we agreed the referee should be neutral. The WBO rules for a world title fight stated that officials should be neutral. Now, we don't blame Furies for this. Um, in fact, Peter Fury was a bit embarrassed. He would have quite happily had neutral officials, and I believe that. The British Boxing Board of Control and their board is a whole lot of QC lawyers and judges, etc. They were the ones that selected the officials. Now, the, the shocking thing is that the referee, not only was the referee British, it was the same referee that had refereed two, the last two Huey Fury fights. So it looked like the house referee. It breached all three contracts, WBO, fight contract, handshake agreement, and spirit of agreement. It induced breach of those contracts. Not only was it bad, it looked bad. So the goal was to... One, the number one goal was change the referee. Two, if we can't change the referee, bring scrutiny at least to the to the referee they put in. And three, gain media coverage. And there's three ways to go about that. If you run a normal professional press conference, you'll probably be ignored. You'd be lucky to make page seven spot. You won't get people talking. The second method is to contrive a, a, a stunt, if you like, now, that's more effective than the professional one. You might make the front page of sports, but to the seasoned fan, they'll know it's contrived. Like Mayweather-McGregor, that stunk of being contrived. It worked, but it's stunk of being contrived. And then the third way, which takes a bit of instinct, is to train records where you make a prophecy that isn't overly planned. That gets you on the front page of the paper, and it certainly did in this case. And so, and it was fact and honesty-based again. I and I knew I knew Peter Fury was a handshake guy and a man of his word, and it, and I knew that he genuinely was happy. He didn't care who the referee was, so we made them wait twenty minutes late. Walked straight up to Peter, looked him in the eye, and said, "Neutral referee, not a fair fight if it's not a neutral referee." And and then he fired up, and there was an exchange, and then I was kicked out. And it, what was fascinating, the media response, and this is. And by the way, Peter Fury and I are friendly. I respect him. I, I cleared the air the next day and I said, look, I'm sorry. I, I, you know, I was fired up about the referee and 
um, you know, trying to promote the fight. And he sort of paused and he said, look, no hard feelings. So we cleared it up. And in the end, the referee got changed. So the proof is in the pudding. It worked. It was a blunt method, but it worked. It put the fight on the front pages in New Zealand. It got heaps of coverage in the UK. The referee got changed. But what was interesting, the New Zealand media vilified me and painted, painted Peter Fury as a white knight. And then the UK media vilified Peter Fury and painted me as a white knight, <laughs> by and large. And the lesson in that is, it's the Paul Poppy syndrome. They like to build people up and take them down. So instead of worrying about the facts of the issue, the New Zealand media chose to say that I'm the nutcase. <laughs> and the UK media started saying that, you know, having a crack at Peter Fury, saying that he's a bit of a villain or whatever. And it, it, um, I think in the age of social media, people are getting far more astute at realizing what media agendas are. It's clicks on websites. And sometimes you can get more clicks on your website by character assassinating someone like Peter Fury than actually reporting the facts. And and I think young people will become, become, are becoming more and more aware of this and less trusting, probably more cynical of these mainstream media outlets. It's interesting you say that because what's interesting, particularly in boxing, I haven't seen it anywhere else, is you've got Eiffel TV and Behind the Gloves and these YouTube channels that are growing up now. They've got great access to the gyms. And, you know, I know a lot, a lot of boxing journalists who are very good at what they do, who work for newspapers. And yet these guys are scooping them because they're there every day talking to the promoters. And suddenly we're finding out, well, he might fight him, him or him. Those are the options. And it might be on that day. Well, you di didn't used to get that information. You used to get that information when it was completed. So suddenly new media and uh, social media, as you say, has changed the agenda. And you've got almost citizen journalists now who are monetizing and making a business of their citizen journalism and they're cutting across the old style media there's a bit of a battle going on and it's happening in boxing because boxing needs to promote itself in a way that a sport over here like football doesn't need to so it's, it's, it's an interesting dynamic now yeah 100% and it's exciting and it's a good thing and it means that um, instead of an, an aging hack who's bored, might not ever have liked the sport, be it boxing or cricket, who's paid a salary and is bored um, going, doing the rounds, you end up with a 20-something-year-old who's passionate, a lover of the sport, lives and breathes it, producing content. And in a big market like the UK, with views, they can sell against clicks and make a living out of the thing they love. Now, in New Zealand... You know, it's not as prevalent because we don't have the people. We've only got four and a half million people. It would be hard to make a living. But my understanding, and some of this is new to me, but I'm quickly coming up to speed with it, that some of these website guys are making a damn good living running their own business and living the dream. And um, it, it's a win-win, really, because you know the advertising is measurable. The person doing the reporting genuinely cares and, and loves it. It's building relationships. Um, it sort of, in a way, cuts out the, 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 the middleman or the corporate middleman. So I don't see it as any threat. I think the, the two can live side by side. Certainly, I think the mainstream media, TV and newspapers in particular, are declining. There'll be a rise of these renegade, guerrilla-type smaller players carving out niches based on building relationships with the big 
names, personal relationships, and based on genuine interest in the sport, be it cricket, boxing, whatever. It's exciting times. It was a bit new to me. In New Zealand, I've been promoting probably 30 major boxing events, and I haven't had all these little YouTube channels. And, you know, it was interesting at the press conference for Joshua Parker, the sheer amount of interviews with various YouTube channels who all claim to be bigger than each other and all rubbish the other one. Yeah, that, well, that, that will be par for the course. However, you know, as someone who, who worked with football clubs and in, employed producers and cameramen, what's interesting is the means of production have got much cheaper over the last 10 years. Anyone can pretty much hold a camera and make something pretty decent, a headshot interview. You can fix it in post-production to make it even better. You can put it out on YouTube. And if you look at particularly Eiffel TV, if you look at the amount of views that they're getting, well, I'm not surprised that they've monetized that with sponsors and adverts and things like that because that's an audience now. That's a big audience if if you look at just the views. Just the views. So it's it's this is the way it's going. And because you've got great access at boxing and also... Boxing promotes itself in a in a very different way. And this is another question I want to talk to you about. I think it's behind the gloves I was watching where you talked about, you said there's no pub, good or bad publicity, it's just publicity. But you also said boxing PR is counterintuitive. When you should apologise, you go on the offensive. Just explain what you meant by that, because I think it's true. It takes a bit of a nerve and a thick skin because the human nature is to shy away from conflict and to apologize or not push the envelope. And that's my nature. It took me many years to be able to hold my nerve, um, especially in a big market against the big dogs like Hearn and Joshua. And, you know, that didn't happen overnight. It's scary, but you get experience over time and develop a thick skin and you learn intuitively what works and what doesn't. And it's true. In boxing, like the big corporate sports, rugby, cricket they employ big pr departments companies to look good to be apologetic they're scared of any controversy in boxing you do the absolute opposite of whatever they do where they'd apologize you be belligerent where they shy away from controversy you discuss it and create discussion about it 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 was interesting the dynamic of the joshua opponents of joshua's opponents i'd say almost all of them have formed a master-slave relationship leading into the fight, whereby they're respectful of the champ. They wouldn't say a bad word about him. They wouldn't even, forget saying a bad word, they wouldn't even critique his weaknesses openly. Even Klitschko? Even Klitschko? uh, I think he's fairly gentlemanly. The only one who really had a crack at Joshua was Dillian White, verbally. And after that fight, Joshua publicly acknowledged that Dillian's talk pre-fight had rattled him and almost caused him to lose his head and lose the fight. Joshua said that. And so we looked at that and we thought, we're from New Zealand. People from, oh, who is this kid, Joseph Parker from New Zealand? He's lucky to get a payday. There was this attitude like we should be bowing and scraping. Damn that. We're not doing this as a stunt. We're properly confident. Joshua's weaknesses are real. And everything we said, Joseph's mentally tougher, we believe that. He's got a better chin, we believe that. We think he's got better movement and faster hand speed. But most importantly, we think that Joshua's style is perfect for Joseph. Joseph's not as good against these defensive fighters that sort of run and they're picky like Kajanu or Fury, Ruiz. Joseph's at his best against 
guys that are sort of predictable and come forward and square up and there to be hit. So the two, Joseph and Joshua will end up trading, and we think there's every chance that Joshua goes down. And we're not just saying that. We mean it. Just want to talk about the, the staging, because you, you talked about staging things and pre-planning things. Even though boxing has a narrative, it's an interesting narrative, and ever since Muhammad Ali, it's been trash talk and doing the other guy down, etc., etc. But and everyone accepts that it's it's a somewhat of an act because at the end of the the fight they'll hug and they'll say I didn't mean it and they'll say publicly they didn't mean it. It is literally hype to increase the fight. But if it goes into WWE style hype, it's too much. So you've got to nudge that line but not go over it. Yeah. So where the line is is whether it's fact or not. If it's not fact, like costume wearing, you're a bitch, it's, it's, it's crossing the line. It, so Al, we want to be fact-based. And, you know, there's a saying, the truth hurts. You want to get under Joshua's skin. You don't say, oh, you're a bitch. I'm going to knock you out, punk. You say, you've been dropped half a dozen times. Why is no one talking about it? That's real. So that, that ain't theater. And so at the press conference, I was reserved because my job was done. The deal was made on terms that everyone was happy with. It didn't feel right to be disrespectful to Anthony Joshua at press conference because, first of all, we do respect him. He's turned his life around. He's a good role model. He's an Olympic gold medal winner. He's got an unbeaten record. So we respect that. But we also reserve the right to discuss his weaknesses. He has been dropped half a dozen times. We think he's mentally weaker. He's not a weakling, but mentally weaker than Parker because he doesn't handle criticism well. And when we talked about things like his chin, he starts ranting on about Federer, you know, the king of Dubai, all this rubbish. So I think that fact-based dialogue is, is not theatre and, and should be taken seriously. The bizarre thing, it's so rare to be honest and factual that people, paint some media paints you as if you're crazy for telling the truth. Like it's counterintuitive again. So we did, we did the most fact-based analysis of Joshua there's ever been in his career, where we put video out of him being dropped. We criticize the, the things he says. Like, he gets away with saying things that no one else could get away with. Stupid, delusional crap. Um, and we criticize that. We got the media, half the British media, said that I'm crazy. So the world is so crazy that um, you can run, run a purely fact-based thing the only thing that wasn't fact-based was when Parker sort of quipped about potential steroid use, which we sh we've shied away from because, you know, you, you sh we don't have any proof of anything, so we shouldn't be saying that. But by and large, it was so shocking to be honest and fact-based that some media painted us as nuts. You in particular out there because <clears throat> you're perhaps a more ebullient character than, than Josie Parker, or maybe you're playing a more ebullient character than Josie Parker. But what's interesting, they're saying Dave Higgins is this, Dave Higgins is that, Dave Higgins is, is whatever, but it, it keeps on working. The trick that you are playing, which is train wrecking it and being out yeah. there with the press comments, you, you're getting what you want. You've got the a Joshua fight for Parker, you've got a change in the referee in the Fury fight that you were happy with. It's a trick that they keep on falling for and they keep on calling you stupid for it. Well, I think that's wrong. You're correct, but it's not even a trick. It's just being honest and authentic. <laughs> um, There's no trick to it. It's having the balls to tell the truth. Let's go back a little bit. How did you get into this? Because I think I'm right in saying 
you alluded to you, you've only been in in this sort of eight or nine years, and you had to fight against a lot of negativity in New Zealand and Australia. And of course, boxing isn't a hotbed in that particular area anyway. So, what's the fight been, and and how did you start? Well, no, I started an event in 2004 doing business conferences, and then went to celebrity stuff, all sorts of events. It was sort of going nowhere. I nearly went bankrupt once or twice. No one ever really helped us much or loaned us any money. We sort of hustled one event to another. And then around 2008, I was sort of getting starting to wonder where it was all going. And I went to a documentary movie at a cinema in Auckland called When We Were Kings about the, uh, Muhammad Ali, George Foreman, Rumble in the Jungle. It's brilliant. And I was brilliant. fascinated yeah. by Don King's story of how he put that fight together. Everyone thought it was the fight that could never happen. But King decided it was being undervalued. So he, I think he went to Foreman first and offered him stupid money at the time. I think it was five million US dollars, which was numerous times the highest money ever paid to a boxer. And the Foreman people laughed, of course, saying King took in, you don't have that money. So King did an option agreement where he pays, I don't know, a million dollars down, whatever, and has X amount of time, maybe a few months, to put fight together. And if it, if he fails, they can keep his deposit. So I think they thought they he'd fail and they keep the deposit, nothing to lose. He went to Ali, same thing. They laughed and you know thought we'll keep the deposit. He then sold it to an African nation. And in New Zealand at the time, there were two heavyweights that had been calling each other out for five years, and it was massive public demand. And no one thought the fight would ever happen because there were egos involved and not enough money had been offered. And it was being talked about for years as dead and buried. And I, I, I that Bob Dylan's say, uh, line from Like a Rolling Stone, he says, when you ain't got nothing, you've got nothing to lose. And at that time, I was at that point of either walk away or make something happen. So I thought, why don't I have a crack at putting this boxing event together? You know, it's not like a concert where there's only one or two revenue streams, tickets and sponsorship. I thought of, I thought of sort of fantasizing about putting that event, and there'd never been a pay-per-view event on New Zealand soil. I thought, what if I could get that event contracted? And it was so massive. I thought, gee, if you put it on pay-per-view TV, it could break records. You household pay-per-view. You've got pub and club pay-per-view. That's two revenue streams. You've got ticket sales. You've got corporate hospitality. You've got merchandise sales. You've got food and beverage sales. You've got international television You've got sponsorship. You've potentially got government money or host city money. The list is long. I thought, shit, there's nine or ten revenue streams. And that's something that's very different. People think concerts are the biggest business. The U2, the Rolling Stones, they're not. They're not because there's only one or two revenue streams. There's no television. And the act, band, keeps all the money. So you can't get rich promoting concerts unless you're a big corporate like Live Nation. But in boxing, there's literally 10 revenue streams and potentially globally. So what I did was similar to King. I offered these two New Zealand boxers triple or quadruple what anyone else had and got the deal and got a city on board. And the media wrote me up as crazy and an idiot and they're going to go bankrupt um, because no boxing event in New Zealand is worth that sort of money. It was half a million each million, but it was... There was no big boxing in New Zealand ever, so it looked crazy. But my hunch was right. We ran a pay-per-view. It's still number one today. So the, the, the number of pay-per-views it sold is a New Zealand record, bigger than Parker's world title win. And no disrespect to Parker, the things were different then. There's a lot more piracy now. So 
you can't really compare the two, but it's it's the New Zealand record to this day, and it could be the world record as a ratio against population. Um, I think it was 15 to 20% of the pay-per-view, of households with pay-per-view bought it, which is high. So anyway, that's how I got into boxing. It's funny because between then and now, I've done about 30 shows. With this latest one, the criticisms I'm getting are very similar to the one nine years ago. And so I'm sort of bemused a bit thinking, geez, don't people learn? Like if you've, if you've done it then with no money and against all odds, and then you've done 30 in between, you might know what you're doing. That fight was David Tua versus Cameron, right? Correct. You've also got Jeff Horn in your stable, is that right? Do you deal with him directly yes. or is he just in, as part of your group? Yes. Because he's obviously got the win over No, no, no. We, we, only, we, we only have two fighters signed by Duco. One is Jeff Horn and one is Joseph Parker. And I don't know if this is unique. I spoke to Bob Aram about it. They're both current world champions. A lot of promoters will sign 50 or 100 fighters and out of that end up with one or two world champions. But I, it's quite unique to only sign two, and they're both world champions. But in boxing, it's such a risky business, and you can lose so much money, especially the promoters. Everyone hates the promoters. The fighters think the promoters are ripping off and making too much money. The public criticize guys like Eddie Hearn, who have lifeblood of the sport. A lot of times, they're losing money. So the promoters are the most hated people in the sport, who are often losing money more than, than making money. It's a hard yakker being a promoter. We thought, you know, it's that whole needle in the haystack principle. You can lose so much money that you really only want to sign the best. With Joseph, we got lucky a bit, and so did he. Like, if, if we hadn't met him, he'd probably be a builder in South Auckland, West Auckland. And if he hadn't met, and, and then we wouldn't have the heavyweight world champion. So it was, it was serendipitous how our paths crossed. We're good friends, and it's worked out. Um, with Horn, I said to our matchmaker, Stuart Duncan, we don't want to waste time on anyone even above mediocre. It's such a risky sport and you invest so much. We want only the best of the best. Only bring me a name if you think they're absolute elite and potential world champion. And after a year or two, he started pushing Jeff Horn. And, uh, you know, and then we kept an eye. And after a year, we listened to Stuart Duncan and, and made an offer. And, and, you know, the rest is history. As you say, he beat Manny Pacquiao and he's current, the current welterweight world champion. With Tua Cameron, just to go back to that for a second, it was pay-per-view, that's correct, that, that, that's right, isn't it? And you, you said that you were, on the day, you thought you'd lost a million because everything comes in so late with, with pay-per-view. Most people buy pay-per-view the day or the evening of the event. Then sort of 20% will buy it the day before, and maybe 5% before that. And the stakes were so high, on that it was a multi-million dollar cost. To break even, I had to get dubbed. The previous New Zealand record was Lennox Lewis versus Mike Tyson in 2002, I think. To break even, I had to double that. And no one knew what it would do. So the Saturday morning of the event, we were losing a million dollars and going bankrupt. And the CEO of the TV company, who's been a great supporter, Sky Television and John Flett is his name, was texting us by the hour as the buys came in. It's... You know, we got up that morning, fingers crossed, and, you know, hour by hour, there's more and more buys coming. It was crazy. It was massive. That evening, just before the event started, we hit break even, and by the end of the event, we'd made good money. 
And so it was like a roller coaster. This is the interesting thing that despite boxing, all its criticisms, all the fact it hasn't moved on the sport in many years and people say it's barbaric, etc. And, and that, that argument exists. However, nothing generates the buzz sporting wise as a big fight can it can really take over the world or it can take over a country very very easy and of course it's a sport that's easily understandable everyone knows what's going on in a boxing fight the rules are very simple they haven't changed for years boxing aficionados have nuances that they can understand but the lay person can also get something out of a fight which makes it a good tv spectacle and the hype around it makes it very different sporting wise different to soccer or cricket because it's just one event and you build up to it it's a different cadence. Look, there's a reason why things like soccer, rugby, cricket won't work on pay-per-view. And it goes to the core of the point you just made. That the reason why boxing can capture a, a nation or the world and, and to the point that people will pay top dollar, Mayweather Pacquiao might have been 100 US dollars for pay-per-view in the United States. The reason is the stakes are so damn high People are fascinated, and I think it is brutal, and sometimes I feel uncomfortable about it. I, I wouldn't I'd come into this by being a lover of men fighting each other. To me, it's a, it's a, create, it's a business, a very challenging business um, that I've come to appreciate. You know, the people that do it are of free will, generally. I don't think, I think it's unethical to put people in the ring that aren't of sound mind or don't know what they're doing or exploitative, but by and large, most people do choose to do it of their own free will and you know going mount going skiing is risky you might kill yourself going surfing and you know if they know the risks and choose to accept them i'm a liberal unless there's exploitation going on which i don't approve of but the public fascination is the stakes are so damn high if, if you're playing rugby or soccer premier league soccer if you're if your favorite player gets injured they'll draft a replacement in off the bench if your favorite team manchester united loses it's not the end of the world. They've got a game next week. They might win. And so the stakes aren't near as high. In boxing, you've got guys normally from the wrong side of the tracks and have battled their way up often from the gutter who, on any given night, if they win, they could be the biggest superstar in the world. If Joseph Parker knocks out Anthony Joshua, he'll be one of the biggest stars in the world and you know, untold riches. And if they lose they're written off and have to join the queue again, you know, start again at the bottom of the queue. The stakes are high, and that's the reason why you can charge pay-per-view for it and why people are fascinated. It's a fact. More movies have been made about boxing than any other sport. People are, are fascinated by it. And, and funnily enough, I know a lot of professional sports people in those other sports, soccer, rugby, football, as you call it, rugby, they all fascinated by boxing. A lot of the... The tough, the All Blacks and the league players, they want to be boxers or they want to try boxing. And I think they see it as the ultimate, the purest contest of competitiveness. You know, there's, there's nowhere to hide. You're on your own. There's no teammates to back you up. It's you in a fewer test of skill and courage and heart versus another person. You know, a lot of people criticize it. And I think some of the people who criticize don't understand some of the social good it does. I'm a man that can control my temper, and I, I don't, I've never really had a fight in my life, and I don't try to dominate others. But I'm not naive enough to think everyone's like me. There are men in this world who are charging with testosterone and anger and going to do some damage, 
and you know sometimes they end up in gangs or on the street or doing crime and they they can't control their tempers and all that and it's quite interesting to watch when you're in this industry sometimes men like that once they're in the boxing gym they learn to control that and you, you can't win in boxing if you lose your tempo or lose your head you will lose the fight you, you have to learn to be punched in the face and control your anger and your response. If you go wild, you'll usually lose. So I've seen men that could have ended up in jail end up learning to control their temper to the point that, you know, they could be out in a bar and be slapped in the face and they'll smile and shrug it off. You know, it, it does a social good in a way that most most professional boxers, MMA people, do stay out of trouble because the lifestyle, you have to live a very healthy lifestyle and you have to control your temper and so i've seen proper maniacs who might go off the rails rein themselves in and turn their lives around um so and and i think that a lot of um do do gooders don't understand the side of it. i mean it's nice to think the world is perfect and everything it means well but it, it, the, the facts are that you know a lot of people do have a lot of anger and, and need an outlet and and they if they choose to do boxing that's their choice i i wouldn't do it and i haven't but, you know, we're not all the same. But boxers, like many sportsmen, but boxers, there's a lot of personal car crashes afterwards, after boxing, they retire. So what are you doing to look after Joseph's long term? Because it's the hardest game in the world and you, you want to make sure he walks away from the sport with his health intact, but also his finances looked after. So everyone is different. Thankfully, with Joseph, he doesn't need anyone to look after him. So actually, it's a patronizing question. People say to you, oh, are you giving him good advice or is he getting good advice, right? And, and you know, you're talking about a 20-something-year-old, probably multimillionaire. Um, you've never met them. You don't know whether they're intelligent or stupid. He might be a mathematician for all you know. So, and then you, then you sort of say to them, you've got mates who are builders and plumbers. You ask, you, I don't hear you asking if they're getting good advice, like it's because they're a boxer, you assume that the stupid are going to squander. So, but you know, sadly, some some of professional boxers over time have squandered what you know money and all that. But that's common of every sport, not just boxing. Boxing gets the headlines, but footballers, but accountants, lawyers, in every industry, there's people who are smart and manage their money well, and there's people who squander. Um, so there's this fallacy that if you're a boxer, you might be a moron and you need good advice. Well, it's on your head. It's personal responsibility. Joseph Parker is genuinely intelligent. He, he's, you know, I, early on, I said, you need to set up a family trust. It's modeled on the one I set up. Um, he's got independent directors, including the former Supreme Court judge. Uh, but most importantly, he doesn't rely on those people per se. He's very smart himself. Um, from early on, I was having Joseph read budgets, contracts. He writes very, articulates very well in email and phone. He's polite to everyone. He can read and understand the contract. He, he'll be set up for life after this fight. He's careful, smart. But, you know, like any industry, there's, there's people like that and people who make dumb decisions. It's not because they're boxers. It's because they make dumb decisions. Um, so I'd be disturbed... It would be worse if Joseph did need to rely on me, but if he did, I wouldn't do wrong. I'd do right. I'd help him. But he, fortunately, he doesn't need 
me to micromanage these things for him because he's got a, got a good head on his shoulders. I wanted to talk about Huey Fury Parker and going back to the pay-per-view thing that we were talking about. Well, you put Huey Fury Parker on YouTube as a pay-per-view. I don't think I've heard that being done before. What was the process? We, we didn't. Ah, it wasn't you. We didn't. Okay, so but we you were, were happy we enough with the Parker, deal? Or? So Huey Fury was the mandatory and we, we were guaranteed a sum of money and it was promoted by Hennessy Sport. Um, we were hoping it would go on Sky or BT, but there was date issues and all that. And the, the British promoter put it on YouTube. They were written off by many, but um, they had a backer in their camp who was a very intelligent, connected guy and, and made a lot of money in the tech industry. And I had a hunch that this wasn't by chance that this guy had connections and did my due diligence and... A lot of people in British boxing were saying that that fight wouldn't happen, it would fail, they wouldn't pay, the YouTube broadcast would be a fuck-up. All of that was proven wrong. The fight did happen, they did pay the money, and the YouTube broadcast worked. It could have been the first time in history there's been a heavyweight title fight on YouTube pay-per-view. I suspect it was. It might not have been overly financially successful for them, but it did break new ground, and it did work, and it proved a lot of people wrong. So I make my own mind up. Um, we were a little bit nervous about it. We'd have preferred it was on Sky just because profile for Joseph. It got a lot less viewers than it could have. But then again, they put the fight on. They paid us the money they owed us. We won the fight. I have no complaints. Good on them for, for breaking new ground. Was it financially successful enough for you? Yeah, we had, a, we had a guaranteed purse that was negotiated up and paid up front into a lawyer's trust account. So, yes, Joseph did well, and we got exactly what we were ex- expecting. I just, fin- just finishing up on Joseph, how do you use social to promote him? He does his own social media to some extent, and he's got people that help him. And we, we have a media person, Craig Stanaway, who, who uses Facebook a lot and Twitter. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be honest, I'm not a world expert on social yet, and I, I think it is the future, and I'd like to become more expert in it and capitalize on it more. So the more I can learn about it, the better. But um, what I do know is it's often far more persuasive than, than the general media, far more measurable than the general media, and more engaging and um, you know, better bang for buck. So the, you know, the, the more we can learn about it, the better we can embrace it, the better for everyone. And... The future for Parker beyond Anthony Joshua, presuming it, it's a win, it's a unification with Wilder after that, is it? No, it'll be a rematch with Joshua. We gave him that as an insurance policy because he was worried about his chin. <laughs> you're, you're ending on that one. <laughs> well, that, well, thank you yeah. very much for your time, David. I really appreciate it. No worries. You've been listening to Sport, Digital and Social with Mr. Richard Clark. Rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. You can find Richard on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram by searching for at Mr. Richard Clark or at his website, MrRichardClark.com.